Hello and welcome to History of Electronic Music, Part 11. Welcome to the show. My name is Paul Sheikey and this is part 11. Now, I was going to be talking about two artists this time, um, Brian Eno's Rockworks and the Yellow Magic Orchestra. But upon deeper listening, I found out that um, the Yellow Magic Orchestra has really no relation at all to Brian Eno. So I've done split it into two parts instead. This will be Brian Eno's rock works, uh, as opposed to his ambient ones, which I've already talked about. And I'll do Yellow Magic Orchestra next time. But this show may be a little shorter. Uh, it may not be. It may just be about the right length. Anyway, um, Brian Eno, or to give him his full name, Brian Peter George St. John Le Baptiste de La Salle Eno, was originally more interested in art than he was in music. Although this was perhaps more to do with the fact that he couldn't play any instrument rather than not enjoying it. But it was a kind of accident that he ended up working in music after he met saxophonist Andy McKay on a subway station in London. As a result of the chance meeting, Brian ended up first helping out with a mixing desk, then enhancing the sound of Andy's band by feeding it through a VCS3 synthy. The band was called Roxy Music, and Brian soon became a full-time member. Although essentially a rock band, they were open-minded, and there's evidence of Eno's keyboard and tape experiments on the title track from their second album, For Your Pleasure. me walk away Ta-ra Ta-ra 
part of For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music, featuring loads of delayed piano sounds by uh, probably Brian Eno. Um, it's interesting also that one of Eno's earliest influences, uh, music-wise, was a player piano that he inherited from his granddad, which is basically a p- piano that plays himself, plays itself. And the same could perhaps be said for a tape loop of a piano, a self-sustaining piano sound. And also that relates to uh, the methods used in music for airports, which I mentioned, of course, in the ambient part. Anyway, um, Eno soon tired of the rock and roll lifestyle and also felt that Brian Ferry dominated Roxy Music too much. So in 1973, he left the band and went solo. Initially, there was little that was recognisably electronic in his music, but his approach to rock music was very different to his contemporaries, in that songs didn't really take shape until the mixing stage, when it could add effects and play around with the separately recorded parts. This is a piece from his first solo album, Here Come the Warm Jets, and it's notable for its use of the flanging effect, and a very bizarre synth solo, and a vocal style also heavily influenced by Brian Ferries. This is the Pawpaw Negro Blowtorch. Poor Negro Blowtorch from 1974. Um, sorry about these extra noises. My computer system seems to have developed some kind of delay. So when I press space to stop the playback, it uh, it doesn't quite get it in time. But sorry about that. 
Um, so for 1974, um, later on in that same year, Eno released his second solo album, which is Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. As with Here Come the Warm Jets, Tiger Mountain is very varied, taking in assaultive rock songs, calmer pop songs, and some plain odd and weird songs. It also demonstrates Eno's expanded use of found sound, as this clip of unusual percussion and tape loops of frogs attests. Some Loops of Frogs from the end of the track The Great Pretender from the 1974 album Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. As part of the album's compositional process, Eno and his friend Peter Schmidt developed a pack of cards containing worthwhile dilemmas as their stimulus to creativity. The oblique strategies, as they became known, contained things like Don't be afraid of things because they're easy to do retrace your steps, and do we need holes? Eric Tav explains how the oblique strategies were useful to Eno. The concept behind the oblique strategies fits smoothly into Eno's overall empirical, in-studio, compositional approach. The aphorisms enabled him to get beyond his linear thinking process, especially during the early, formative stages of a work and provided the sensation that he was indeed riding on the dynamics of some greater system that logic alone could not penetrate. The oblique strategies proved extremely useful during the production of Eno's next album, the undisputed classic Another Green World. By this time, Brian had become a master in the use of the studio as an instrument, as he explains. In terms of an approach to working, I believe I was the first person to state that you didn't have to know how to do anything, that the studio was a new medium and it really freed you from all the constraints that music had traditionally seemed to impose. I maintained that it was possible to go in there with a childlike enthusiasm and to dabble about and come out with something that was interesting and my own work, uh, as far as I was concerned, was a proof of that. Another Green World is Eno's finest expression of this. It also sits nicely between his rock works and his newly developing ambient style, 
as is evidenced in this track from 1975, which is mostly synthesized but also has some guitars in it as well. This is from the album The Big Ship. The Big Ship from Another Green World from 1975. Now, synthesizers were used a great deal more on that album, so this is perhaps a good time to talk about Eno's ambiguous relationship with synths. For the most part, he's tended to stick to a few easy-to-use synths, like the EMS AKS, uh, Yamaha CS80, and the Prophet 5. But he tends to use them in unconventional ways, and often just as modifiers for other sound sources. Uh, one of his key techniques is to feed things through the filters on the EMS, for instance. His open approach to music is reflected in his open approach to technology, as he explains. With devices, my technique is always to hide the handbook in the drawer until I've played with it for a while. The handbook always tells you what it does, and you can be quite sure that if it's a complex device, it can do at least 15 other things that weren't predicted in the handbook, or that they didn't consider desirable. It's normally those other things that interest me. However, what slightly contradicts this uh, love of simple instruments 
is the synth that's most associated with Eno, and that's the Yamaha DX7, as it's one of the most complex synthesizers going. But he doesn't get one of them until the mid-80s, so I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, for now, uh, back to Another Green World. Although the album didn't sell particularly well, it did receive a lot of critical acclaim, and put Brian at the forefront of radical and creative production techniques. At around about this time, David Bowie was looking for someone to produce his next album, and after being turned down by Kraftwerk, he asked Brian if he'd be interested. He was, and the pair worked on three albums together, collectively known as the Berlin Trilogy, as that is where they were produced. Uh, some were recorded elsewhere, but most of it was mixed in Berlin. Uh, this track in particular shows quite a bit of Krautrock influence, albeit more from the Dusseldorf school than the Berlin one. This is from the seminal album Low, and it's a new career in a new town. David Bowie with some production help from Brian Eno, a new career in a new town from the album Low from 1977. Later that same year, the pair worked on the second album in the Berlin trilogy, Heroes. On one track, the Oblique Strategies cards played a major role, as Eric Tam and Eno explain. Bowie and Eno used the deck of Oblique Strategies extensively in the making of Heroes, and both worked on all the pieces all the time, almost taking turns. When they began work on Sense of Doubt, each pulled out a card and kept it a secret. It was like a game. We took turns working on it. He'd do one overdub, and I'd do the next. The idea was that each was to observe his oblique strategy as closely as he could. And it turned out they were entirely opposed to one another. Effectively, mine says, try and make everything as similar as possible, and his said, emphasise differences. This is the track that we're talking about. This is Sense of Doubt.
part of Sense of Doubt from David Bowie's uh, 1977 album Heroes, but that track was co-written, uh, as were several others on the album, by Brian Eno. 77 was a busy year for Eno. As well as working with Bowie, he also worked with Cluster on the album Cluster and Eno, which I played a bit of in the ambient part. And he also released his final non-ambient solo album of the 70s, Before and After Science. Like another green world, Before and After Science contains a mixture of styles, but it's really the more hymn-like tracks, like this one, that stand out. This is The Spider and I. Spider and I from Before and After Science from 1977. Before and After Science was to be Eno's last album with lyrics for some time, 
but he did continue to produce rock-style music for other bands, most notably in the late 70s and early 80s, Talking Heads. He worked with them on three albums, but it was on the last, Remaining Light, that his influence really started to show through. Remaining Light was also heavily influenced by African music, in particular its polyrhythmic structure. Uh, this can be evidenced on this track. This is Seen and Not Seen. Seen and Not Seen from the 1980 Talking Heads album Remain in Light as produced by Brian Eno and I think they did that in Barbados or the Cayman Isles or something some exotic place they recorded that um, Eno and Talking Heads' lead singer David Byrne enjoyed working together so much that they decided to do an album together My Life in the Bush of Ghosts is notable in its continuing exploration of non-Western musical styles and also in its use of samples from other people's music and electronic manipulations of vocal samples in particular, which was quite radical at the time. In this clip from a 1980 interview, Eno introduces an incomplete version of a track from that album. Um, This next piece, which I'm again trying to find on the cassette, uh, is a very early piece. I mean, it's it's very early in the sense that hardly anything has happened to it yet, and it features um, an anguished Brooklyn man calling a talk station um, and an oily politician replying to him. This song is called Mea Culpa. Thank you. 
Yeah, I like that. No, one I too. like that very much. <laughs> Is that finished now? No, no. That's I've, a I've beginning of something. That was the the first two things that went on: the voices and the synthesizer. Since then, I put on a cardboard box, two ashtrays, and a piece of marimba, which which things now form the rhythm section of this song. David and I have been working in peculiar conditions in that we only have a couple of instruments a guitar and a bass guitar and we have a synthesizer. What so tone is that? Prophet. A prophet yeah. synthesizer. Um, and so the, all the percussion we wanted we've derived from other sources like prepared piano and boxes and tins and so on and so on. So let's have a listen to the final version of that with all that found sound percussion uh, from the actual album My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. This is the finished Mia Culpa. Mea Culpa from 1980, 1981-ish. Through the 80s, Brian concentrated on ambient works, 
But it was in the 80s that he acquired the instrument that he has become most associated with, the Yamaha DX7. The DX7 used frequency modulation or FM synthesis as developed by John Chowning at Stanford University and explained in an earlier chapter of this program. It wasn't the first FM synth, but it was the first at a reasonable price, so it sold extremely well. The DX7 had six sine wave oscillators, or in their terminology, operators, which could be set to either carrier or modulator status, which in practice meant that it was capable of producing reasonably accurate reproductions of real-world instruments. It was particularly good at producing bell-like sounds, but it was also really very versatile. It was also uh, one of the first synths to be fitted with MIDI. It's In a way, it's quite odd that Eno became a big fan of the DX7, as it's notoriously hard to program, and not very intuitive, as it doesn't have the knobs of analogue synths. But his reasons are perhaps more practical than emotional, as he explains in this quote from Future Music magazine. I use the DX7 because I understand it. I was quite ill for a while, and I filled the time by learning it. I think it's just as good as anything else. Sticking with this is choosing rapport over options. I know that there are theoretically better synths, but I don't know how to use them. I know how to use this. I have a relationship with it. So let's hear a few of the sounds he's managed to get out of uh, DX7. This is sort of very digital sounding uh, synth pads, uh, but very nice sounding as well and unique. Uh, this is from his 1992 album, NerveNet, and this is Fractal Zoom.
Crystal Zoom from Eno's 1992 non-ambient album, NerveNet. It's quite hard to pin down exactly what was from a DX7 in that, but I'm almost certain there's some DX7 stuff in there, but it's quite difficult to actually tell what it is because he's probably using some of his old analog synths as well. Um, obviously, I've kind of missed out Brian's 80s works, and that is because they are primarily ambient ones, so not really for this program. Um, but also important in the 80s, Brian started a long and fruitful relationship with the band U2. He co-produced five albums for them between 1984 and 1993, by which time he had built up a rapport with them, uh, which allowed him to take a more active role in the compositional process. The resultant album was deemed too radical to be released as a U2 album, and was instead released under the name Passengers. It was called Original Soundtracks 1, as each song was meant to be from a film, although in reality most of the films were fictional, and were listed as starring people who were just anagrams of the people who worked on the album, such as Vender Davis, which is an anagram of David Evans, which is the real name of The Edge. Uh, from the album, this is United Colours.
United Colours from the 1995 Passengers album Original Soundtracks 1. A year later, 1996, Eno released their groundbreaking work Generative Music 1, thus popularising the term, which describes music that is different every time and created by a system. Uh, he was always making generative music really with his ambient works. Uh, the tape loop systems set to drift naturally, drift naturally out of sync are based on a system and that is essentially generative music. But the system he used in the 90s was a software called Cohen made by SSEYO. Uh, they're now known as Intermorphic and the software is now known as Notical. Um, here's a quite long quote from Eno that explains more about it. Some very basic forms of generative music have existed for a long time, but as marginal curiosities. Wind chimes are an example, but the only compositional control you have over the music they produce is in the original choice of notes that the chimes will sound. Recently, however, out of the union of synthesizers and computers, so much finer tools have evolved. Cone software is probably the best of these systems, allowing a composer to control not one, but 150 musical and sonic parameters within which the computer then improvises, as wind improvises the wind chimes. The works I have made with this system symbolise to me the beginning of a new era of music. Until 100 years ago, every musical event was unique. Music was ephemeral and unrepeatable, and even classical scoring couldn't guarantee precise duplication. Then came the gramophone record, which captured particular performances and made it possible to hear them identically over and over again. But now there are three alternatives. Live music, recorded music and generative music. Generative music enjoys some of the benefits of both of its ancestors. Like live music, it is always different. Like recorded music, it is free of time and place limitations. You can hear it when and where you want. I really think it is possible that our grandchildren will look at us in wonder and say, you mean you used to listen to exactly the same thing over and over again? Now, I don't have any of the music from Generative Music Number 1, plus it would be a bit pointless to play it, as the idea is that it's different every time, as I understand it, you play it within the software, uh, which has certain elements uh, chosen by Eno, and then the computer itself uh, improvises within um, certain parameters that he's set. But I can play an example of where Brian used the Cohen software to create a textural background for one of his songs. Uh, this is from his latest vocal album uh, from 2005, Another Down Earth, and this is a track called Going Unconscious. Thank you. 
going unconscious from the 2005 album Another Down Earth. Um, that's pretty much it for Eno. Um, of course, he's still working. He recently produced um, Coldplay's latest album, and he's also written the score for Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones uh, film recently. If you want to know a bit more about Brian, um, there is a there's there's plenty of stuff online. Um, but there's also a BBC Arena documentary that was made recently. You might be able to get that on YouTube. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, it might also still be on BBC iPlayer if you're in the UK. Uh, and there's also the book that I've quoted a, a little bit from uh, in this programme, which is uh, by Eric Tam, and it's called Brian Eno, His Music and the Vertical Colour of Sound, and it is very interesting. Uh, just remember me to thank you for listening, and... If you'd like to make a contribution to this show, you can send anything by PayPal to my email address, shekel at hotmail.com. And you can also make comments and suggestions for future programs, potentially. Uh, but I've got a heavy lineup already. Um, it's not going to be possible to do one of these every two months. It's just too, it's just too much for me. But every three is, is possible, maybe. Uh, the next one is going to be around about the end of May because I've already done quite a lot of the work on that and that's about the Yellow Magic Orchestra and after that will be Disco and Giorgio Moroder and the electronicization of Disco. Um, but I'm going to leave with another Brian Eno track from uh, Another Day on Earth. Uh, this is this. This world, this feeling, and this girl. 
Bye.